pretty much every Sunday before Pastor Nick comes and walks up to the stage, he comes up to me and says, so you ready to preach today? Um, just kind of messing with me and getting my nerves up a little bit. Uh, he talked about in his training that sometimes his old uh, pastor mentor would do that, make him preach at the last minute. And so he's been threatening that on me for a while now. Um, but this morning I woke up and I felt terrible. And I planned on saying that to Pastor Nick when I got here. <laughs> for real, but Pastor Nick is likewise sick. So you have two sickly preachers this morning. Uh, so if I'm a little less animated this morning, you'll have to, uh, you'll have to forgive me for that. But we'll be back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll reread the section I preached last week to remind ourselves of the context. And then we'll go on through verse 9. Second Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Second Corinthians 8, 1. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great testing by affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability... They gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we encouraged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in word, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Let's pray over this text. Father, we thank you for the mercy and kindness you've shown us in Christ. We pray that through your Spirit, working in and through the Word, you would convict us of sin, instruct us in righteousness, and lead us further and deeper into the knowledge of Christ. Would you bless this congregation of believers now as we seek out your will as it's been preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the first five verses of this chapter and tried to draw out uh, a biblical definition of generosity, which is the virtue that Paul's concerned with in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And if you remember, I said last week that Paul is discussing an offering that he's been collecting for these poor saints in Jerusalem. He wrote about it again in 1 Corinthians 16. And he had encouraged the Corinthians to donate to this collection once before. But Paul's desire for the church, uh, the church's giving, was put on pause, probably because of the false teachings and all the problems that had arisen in the church. And while Paul was trying to fix those uh, kind of false teachings and trying to drive out the false teachers... The, a pause was put on this collection. Um, I want to emphasize the, uh, the specific purpose for which Paul was asking the Corinthians to give because I got a couple questions last week wanting me to clarify some things I said and how that may or may not fit with uh, what we have commonly come to know as a 10% mandatory tithe, uh, something along those lines. That's a popular practice in many churches today. I said last week that generous giving had to be free and without compulsion. So I got the question... Uh, is it really free and without compulsion if you're mandated to tithe 10%? So they were asking whether this conflicts with uh, that doctrine. But I want to say now, uh, so as to not cause any confusion, that what Paul's talking about here is not what is normally considered tithing. 
Uh, when evangelical churches talk about tithing, they're usually referring to a sum of money given regularly to your local church to aid in things like uh, paying your pastor, aiding with the building, things along those lines, the ordinary work of ministry. But Paul isn't talking about that at all here. The collection for the Jerusalem churches would be better likened to our missions giving, for example. The regular support we give to people like uh, Gabor and Edna or Ray Hansen. So really, Paul isn't addressing what we would call tithing at all in this text. Uh, There are a lot of different positions on tithing, as I'm sure you know, on this idea of a mandatory 10% tithe. And it really has to do with some of your assumptions about the Old Testament, how that fits with New Testament practices, what even was going on with the tithe at all in the Old Testament, whether that was connected with uh, the civil sphere or just the ecclesiastical sphere. So there's all these different questions to get into uh, when you're asking yourself whether this 10% tithe applies to us today. Uh, But because it's so broad of a topic, I'm not going to address it today, and I think I'll just leave the good stuff for Pastor Nick um, (laughs) when when he gets back. But in all seriousness, I haven't been able to uh, come to a very clear understanding uh, myself on that question. But I know Pastor Nick has been thinking through it, so he'll probably share his thoughts in the coming weeks. Uh, But regardless, we see that Paul was trying to provoke the Corinthians to a similar kind of generosity that he saw in the Macedonian churches, who again, he says, gave above and beyond their ability to help the Jerusalem saints, these poor Jerusalem saints. And in verse 6, we read that this collection had already begun... But Paul intended to complete the gathering by sending Titus, one of his uh, fellow workers in the gospel, Titus, uh, to Corinth to to continue in this collection. We read this in verse 6. So he encouraged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Titus, it seems, had uh, visited Corinth once or perhaps twice before. It's a little unclear from what we read in 1 and 2 Corinthians. But he certainly did bring this letter to them. And when he was with them last, he started this collection, it seems, started the collection for the Jerusalem saints, but it hadn't been completed for the reasons we talked about previously. But we read a little bit about why uh, Paul sent Titus specifically to carry this letter. It's because Titus had begun this collection. He had started a work in the Corinthian congregation. And Paul saw it fit that because they were familiar with Titus and because he had started the labor, that he would go and complete it himself. And so Paul goes on a little more to talk about the generosity he expects of them. But before we get to that specifically and look more deeply at this topic of generosity, I want to point out something in verse 7 that stuck out to me this week as I was preparing. In verse 7, it reads, But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in word, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and the love which we inspired in you, so he's saying you're abounding in all these graces in Christ. Remember the background of this Corinthian congregation. They were an immoral and a debaucherous people, but he's saying you abound in everything, in faith, in word, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you. See also that you are gracious, or abound in this gracious work also. So Paul's uh, taunting all their, their good graces, all the ways Christ is sanctifying them and cleansing them, changing them from their previous patterns of behavior. And then he tacks on at the end and also now strive on into this obedience also, this gracious work also. And at any moment in the church, people usually have a tendency to sin in one, or, uh, one of two directions. We see here that Paul is pressing the Corinthians on to further and deeper obedience in Christ, even though they really seem to be doing all right. They've got their problems. We've seen that before. But they are repenting, as we see in chapter 7. They seem to be doing all right. He says they're abounding in all these graces. They're abounding in everything, he says, in faith, in word, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love. So they seem to be doing all right. 
And you can imagine the Corinthians, I'm sure, are receiving the compliments well. The apostle himself is complimenting their church and their gathering. And I'm sure it's been hard to change completely out of their old way of life, casting off their former sins, learning to live life in an entirely new way. In 1 Corinthians, we see them coming out of backgrounds of drunkenness, idolatry, and all sorts of sexual immorality. And after they're met with the gospel, Paul says, now turn your life around and start dying to yourself daily, walking in Christ. This is a completely new congregation. And after they've made great strides in changing their sinful behavior, Paul then says, but there's one more area in which you're lacking. Here's one more area where you can press on into even more obedience. So he's complimenting them. He's saying, yes, you are virtuous. Yes, you are growing in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's one area you're lacking. Go on and pursue this virtue. And I can imagine, because I see this same attitude amongst us sometimes, and especially in my own heart, you can hear them saying, come on, Paul. We're kind of working hard here, right? We've been doing the best we can, and now you're just heaping another thing on us. Now you want our money, (laughs) which money and finances comes up a lot in this book because that was one of the accusations that that was being brought against Paul was that he wasn't handling money well. But you can almost hear them saying we're exhausted, right? Exhausted with this Christian life. Uh, Exhausted with one thing after another. For some of them, I've quit my debauchery. I got a job. I'm supporting my family. I'm going to church every week. I'm instructing my kids. What else do you want from me, Paul? And you can almost hear Pastor Nick lean in and say, yeah, that's great. Now press on a little further. Quit complaining about how hard it is. Quit being lazy at work. Or, okay, I'm at home with the kids. I've written out the homeschool curriculum for the next year and a half. I'm reading to the kids. I'm making dinner every night. What else do you want from me? And your husband leans in. Honey, we need to talk about you being a little more patient with the kids. Or, honey, we need to talk about the fact that you're being a little too sinfully anxious lately. And you just want to scream at him. Don't you know how hard I've been working? Don't you know how hard this has been on me? Or maybe all your kids are gone and you're dealing with an entirely different set of circumstances. Maybe you're dealing with sick or elderly parents. And they're stubborn and they're not making anything easier for you. And you can't even tell if they're a little bit grateful for all the trouble you're going through for them. And here comes Pastor Nick again walking up. And good gracious, you already know exactly what he's going to say. And he says, whatever you do, do it with joy and contentment. Here's one other thing to be working on, right? Make sure your parents know you honor them. And you're just tired. You're just tired. You're worn out in your Christian life. You're tired. And here are the two sinful ditches you can fall into precisely at this point. On the one hand, you can become apathetic and hopeless and just give up. Just, well, if nothing I ever do is going to be good enough, I'm going to quit trying. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm done. And that's one sinful ditch you can fall into. And the way this sin manifests is by neglecting your duties. You actually stop doing what Christ has called you to do. For the last example, you might say, I hereby designate my parents to be my brother's problem. Call me when it's all sorted out. Right? You could pawn your duties off onto other people or just neglect them in general. And this is where we see negligent fathers, abdicating mothers, lazy employees, and transient churchmen, people who just come in and out. We don't even know that they go to church here anymore because they're tired. They're tired. The response to their exhaustion is just to lay down and give up. But you can also fall into another ditch. You're not going to give up your duties. You'll do what you're supposed to do, but you're going to walk through life like a zombie with your eyes glazed over, right? You'll do exactly what you're supposed to do outwardly, but there's no joy, no contentment, and no thankfulness for your life. And this is the ditch I'm much more likely to fall into myself, if I'm being honest. The other day, uh, I saw Emily after work, and she said, What would you do today? I sat there for about 30 seconds. (laughs) 
I have no idea what I did today. I don't even remember, if I'm being completely honest. I think my body went to work and my brain stayed in bed this morning. Um, And the problem with that is that you can't just snap out of that when you get home. You can't just turn that off all of a sudden. That switch doesn't just flip whenever you ask it to. You are tired, you are exhausted, so you decided to fight it by completely turning your brain off and mindlessly and apathetically trudging through the day as if it's just a life of misery. And you might want to get away, and you might get away with it while you're at work. Most people there, uh, if it's anything like my work, their eyes are probably just as glazed over as yours. Uh, but I'd be willing to bet that your wife's going to notice when you get home. But when Pastor Nick comes up and says, here's what you need to do, here's how you can press further into obedience, you hold up a salute, you say, yes, sir, and you do your duties outwardly. And you go on droning through life. You go on trudging through life. And I get it. Believe me, you're exhausted and you're tired. And we all get that way in the Christian life. It's a, it's a hard life. Christ says, pick up your cross and follow me. And if your life as a Christian is easy, you're probably not doing it right. It really is a daily life of picking up your cross, denying yourself, denying yourself of all ungodliness, and that's difficult. That's tiring. But if you fall into one of those two ditches, you're also in sin. (laughs) So you want to stay clear of both abdication on the one hand and a joyless, miserable existence on the other. Neither of those seem quite fun, do they? (laughs) So here's the first thing you do. How do you fix this? How do you stay out of these ditches? The first thing you do is you verbally confess that you are wrong and God is right. You're going to be really tempted to see if you can provide God with 20 reasonable arguments while you really don't need to change, while you're perfectly justified in your actions, and maybe you think, maybe if I argue really convincingly, maybe God will change his mind, right? Maybe God will change his mind and start to agree with me that I'm doing things all right. But let me assure you, you're not winning that argument. So no matter how justified you feel that you are in your apathy, no matter how exhausted you feel, verbally confess, Father, you are infinitely more wise than I am. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I confess, Lord, you know what's best. I trust that and I submit to that. That's the first step. We talked about this last week in my 9 a.m. class. Um, One of the most powerful ways to combat your sin is to verbally confess to God and to others, by the way, that you're actually sinning. Half the battle is to overcome your callous conscience and to quit justifying your sin in the first place. When we get into a a rut of sinful behavior, these patterns of sinful behavior that we fall into, your first tendency, the first thing you tend to do is hide it, press it down. You don't think about it. And if you do think about it, if you really can't get it out of your mind, you try to just do whatever you can to occupy your mind with something else so you can get it out of your head. You just don't want to think about your sin because you don't want to repent of it. You don't want to change. So we completely ignore it and we justify it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Sometimes you get stuck in patterns of sin and you so deaden your conscience that you don't even think of it as sin anymore or you don't even think about it at all. You can go through life and you can sin and you're so deadened in your conscience that you're not even thinking about it. But here's how you fight your sin. Here's the really simple first step. You call it what it is. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't lessen the blow. Confess to God and others what I've done is sin, and it's a reflection of my lawless and rebellious heart, and now guess what? You can't hide it anymore. Now it's out in the open. What are you going to do? Then your sin lies right in front of you, and you have to face it for what it is. There it is in all its heinousness, in all its ghastliness. There it is sitting in front of you, and now you have a choice. You've confessed it. You know it's wrong. You've said what God says about it, and here's your choice as you look upon your sin. Am I going to repent? Am I going to be sorrowful over my sin and walk in the other direction? Or am I going to walk right back into that filth? That's the choice at that point. You make the choice clear to yourself. You don't try to hide it in your conscience. You put it out there right in front of you. You confess it and say it is what God says it is. 
And then you choose, am I going to repent or am I going to walk right back in that filth which I just confessed was so heinous, which I just confessed is so grievous against God? I assure you, it's a lot harder to walk back into the filth once you've confessed out loud and verbally and before others, by the way, not just you privately to God. James does talk about us confessing our sins to others as well. It's a lot harder after you've gotten that, to that point for you to walk back into that pattern of sinful behavior. It's not impossible. We can all do it. But once you confess it out loud and to others, there's no more hiding it, and that's the first step to getting out of that, getting out of that rut. The London Baptist Confession puts it this way. God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. This is talking about after you've been saved, God continues to forgive your sins, even though they can fall, they can never, rather, fall from a state of justification. You can't actually lose your salvation, but they might fall under God's fatherly displeasure because of their sins. In that condition, they will not usually have the light of his face restored to them. It's talking about that intimate fellowship that you can have with the Lord. You won't have that light of his face restored to you, until they humble themselves, confess their sins, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So you confess it. You actually name the sin, you repent, and you believe God when he tells you through his word that you are forgiven. But we're not just talking about how to, or we are rather, just talking about how to deal with the sin right now. But what about that exhaustion I talked about? What about that feeling of being so worn down and tired because you're in this grand pursuit to fight off your sin? Because it seems like every day there's somewhere else where you're falling short. And if you don't realize that, then you need to think a little bit harder about it. Well, doing what we just talked about will help a great deal, I promise you. The regular practice of confessing and repenting. But there's something else I think we miss, especially in churches that care a lot about doctrine and right belief, which we do, and praise God that we do. But we forget that Christianity isn't some bland revelation of propositional truths. Um, we fail to recognize that God is raising us up as virtuous men and women to participate in a grand story that is the redemption of the world through the man Jesus Christ, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This isn't just some uh, random theology textbook kind of a church. We have to realize that we're in this grand pursuit of conquering the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ has set us on a mission, and that mission includes the restoration of the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We fail to recognize that he's raising us up as godly godly men and women, godly mothers and fathers. So think about this. God doesn't call you to have children to test your patience. That's not the goal of having children. He isn't trying to torture you. God's actually accomplishing something in this and in this world through your obedience to him. We need to start thinking about the Christian life as the war that the Bible portrays it as. Not just a war against your own sin, although that is part of it, But there's a much grander story being told, a story of the expansion of the rule of Christ in the world. And your goal as a Christian is to fight for Christ's rule and reign to be manifested in every nook and cranny of your life. Wherever you can make Christ's rule and reign manifested in your life, that's what your responsibility is as a Christian. And I'm afraid that sometimes we've let Christianity capture our minds, capture our intellects, and we can go through all the intellectual reasons why it's true and why what God says is best. You can recognize that. You can acknowledge that to yourselves. But we've never let the story of Christ actually grab our hearts and grab our affections. And the difference between that kind of a thinking from the sort of myopic, self-focused pursuit that we often fall in, it becomes obvious if we present things as we should. And it's going to sound cheesy when I do it. But this is how we should present things. Parents, remember, you're being diligent and attentive to your children so that they will grow up to be mighty warriors of the Lord, smashing down the idolatry of our pagan age and waging war against the citadels of unbelief. That's what you're doing. 
And that does sound cheesy, but it's not some image that I thought up while I'm studying. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 127, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with his enemies in the gate. You get this picture of a father at the gates of Israel speaking with his enemies and his children rise up with him to fight the enemies of God. That's the kind of a teaching we need to get enshrined in our brains. That's the kind of way we need to start thinking about the Christian life. And the reason why that kind of kingdom-oriented thinking actually helps combat the the spiritual exhaustion that I'm talking about is because we start remembering that uh, we're actually fighting for something. Does that make sense? We're fighting for the rule and reign of Christ, the rule and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ to be manifested in this world. We're working toward the knowledge of the Lord, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what Isaiah says. For the example of one who might be dealing with a sick or dying parent, self-consciously say to yourself, in this area, in my life, in this area, Christ will reign. I refuse to let my sin, my flesh, and the devil reign where the Lord Jesus Christ deserves to be honored. Even in this seemingly insignificant little area of life, I refuse to cede any ground to the devil. Think of it as a war, because it is. And that's the vision I want us to grasp, to go forward with the, the big picture in mind, so we can realize actually what we're fighting for. But don't forget the end of the story. Christ does vanquish all of his enemies. His kingdom does consume all the kingdoms of men. But when it's finished, when it, all is said and done, the glorious crescendo of all redemptive history is actually a wedding ceremony. In other words, at the end of the story, you're brought to heavenly glory with Christ that is so unimaginable, so indescribable, that if you could just catch a glimpse of it, you'd probably start leaving your sin behind. We'd be far more inclined to think biblically, to think like Paul if we thought in this manner. More than that, he says, I count all things as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but having that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God upon faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I might lay hold of that for which also I laid hold of Christ. Brothers, I do not consider myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's mindset, running this marathon, this great spiritual race. If you run a marathon, I assure you, you'll be exhausted. Just like if you run the Christian life, you will be exhausted. You'll be tempted to give up. You'll be tempted to quit. And the one who actually finishes the race, in fact, the only ones who will finish the race, are the ones who count crossing that finish line as much more valuable, much more worthy than the temporal reprieve from their sufferings that they'll get if they give up. And that's the only way you're going to finish that marathon. You have to see the end goal. You have to see the glory as more valuable than your laziness now in giving up. And this isn't an isolated analogy. Paul uses this language of running a couple times in his letters. We read this in 2 Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. Some translations say race there. I've kept the faith, and in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You see where his mind is focused. He's looking for that crown of righteousness, that end goal, that finish line, and that's why he can keep running the course. Think about the life of Paul. He's dealing with much more than you and I could ever deal with. We can't even compare what we're dealing with. 
what with Paul went through. If we read further in 2 Corinthians, we'll see that in just a couple weeks. And yet in his mind, he sees all of it as worth it. Why? Because he keeps his eyes on that finish line. He knows what lies ahead of him. He sees the crown of righteousness. It's been promised to him in the scriptures. And he knows if he just crosses that finish line, if he just remains faithful unto death, he will receive an unfading crown of righteousness. He's reaching on. He's pressing on. And through all his exhaustion, he is exhausted, by the way. We know that. He says it's worth it. It's worth the exhaustion. So Paul says, press on. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on that prize of glory. You've been obedient thus far, he's saying to the Corinthians. But press on, run on, by continuing to abound in godly virtue. Continue on by extending this one more grace that I'm trying to provoke in you, that grace of generosity. Keep on in the Christian life. There's always room for improvement. I don't mean that in some self-help way. I mean that Christ Jesus is the standard, and you're not like him. And thus, there's room for improvement. Keep reaching on toward the character of Christ. And that's what he's doing with the Corinthians. He's trying to put in them, instill in them, one more virtue, one thing that he sees that they're lacking, and that is the virtue of generosity, to press them on into Christ-likeness, to press them on into the Christian life. He clarifies in verse 8 of our text, 2 Corinthians 8, 8. I'm not speaking this as a command, he says. If you remember in our definition of generosity last week, um, being generous, part of that is actually giving freely or without compulsion, we said. So Paul is saying, I'm not going to command you to do this. I'm not going to require this of you, or it wouldn't be generosity anymore. This virtue that I'm trying to instill in you, I can't actually get it out of you. If I'm going to command you at the, at the outset, at the front end, you need to give this. You need to actually give this. And this can get a, a bit confusing, because God does require us to be generous. That's a command. He commands us to be generous. But he doesn't command the exact circumstances in which we're going to be generous. So Paul is holding out a virtue that we're commanded to pursue. He says, you must be generous, but that way that that generosity manifests itself outwardly and in life, that's up to the individual Christian. And giving to this collection for the Jerusalem saints, he's saying, is a good way to be generous. But Paul's not mandating that they give to this specific collection. He is encouraging it because it would be an easy way and an easy area to participate and practice being generous and proving their love for the Jerusalem churches, he says. But the exact manner in which the Corinthians are to practice generosity, that's up to them. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love, he says. Paul's saying that the proof of our inward affection and love for others lies in what we actually do outwardly for them and in the world. Charles Hodge put it like this, the real test of the genuineness of any inward affection is not so much the character of the feeling as it reveals itself in our consciousness. It's not whether we uh, feel warm and fuzzy about them, we could say. But it's about the course of action to which it leads. In other words, are your works actually displaying the love that you claim to have? Many person, uh, this is Hodge speaking again, many persons, if they judge themselves by their feelings, would regard themselves as truly compassionate. But a judgment founded on their actions would actually lead to the opposite conclusion. So Paul's urging the Corinthians to give freely to the churches as an act of love. He's trying to promote it freely and as an act of love. He's giving them a good example. Here's a way you could practice in this virtue of generosity, but he's not commanding it. Remember, um, in our definition of generosity last week, we said that generosity has to do uh, with giving others 
what's rightfully yours for the good of the other. Generosity presupposes this love for the individual that you're giving to. So Paul says, let your love be manifested in the good works. Show that you actually love these Jerusalem churches by giving to the collection to aid them in their poverty. And in verse 9, we have the most potent example of love working itself out in generosity. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul just finished talking about how generosity is a natural outward evidence of the inward love that you have for others. And he immediately moves into the best example he can think of. He says, for you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not ignorant of this reality, he's saying. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace which was generously given to us while we were undeserving and unworthy. And yet God saw fit, because of his love for us, to give us something more valuable than we would have ever thought to give to our own neighbors, let's be honest. And Paul says that what was given to us is the life of Christ himself. He was from all eternity exalted and glorified in the presence of the Father, but he chose to leave that exalted state to come down and dwell with sinful man. All the privileges he had, he laid aside and took upon himself the form of a servant. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. Although existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto selfishly, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being made in the likeness of men and And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. Christ does not call us to a generosity that he hasn't already modeled for us. He's modeled it perfectly for us. He's not unfamiliar with sacrifice. In fact, he's far more familiar with sacrifice than you and I will ever get. And he did it freely and joyfully. Hebrews 12 says this, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He did it freely and joyfully for the good of the other and because he was provoked to love for us. That's what generosity is. And if Christ really has offered us all his riches, how could we be so stubborn and rebellious as to hold on to everything we have, all these meager possessions that we have, with a tight fist? And perhaps there are some of you here that don't know that generosity. Those who haven't uh, taken hold of that grace that Christ offers generously to you. Well, I can assure you on the authority of the word of God that if you come to him in faith, there is enough grace even for you. God is generous. He's not stingy with his grace. And if you come to him in faith, you'll find that there's enough grace even for you. Christ became poor. He gave up all his heavenly prerogatives and the glories of unbroken communion with the Father so that those who come to him will gain the riches that he had. There is a path to the Father. There is a path to everlasting life. And that path has nothing to do with your good works. It has nothing to do with even how sincere you are in your religious commitments. The path to the Father is a person with a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And if you want the life that he offers freely to you, you need to reckon with that Christ. Paul said that he humbled himself unto death. But he also says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I implore you today, come join the great throng of men and angels who confess with a loud voice, the risen Christ is Lord. And in that confession, you will gain the greatest treasure that's ever been offered the most generous gift any man has ever given, you'll receive that righteousness of Jesus Christ. Something you could never deserve, but something that you desperately need. And Christ offers it to you here and now. 
but I must warn you that offer won't last forever. And if you continue in your hardness of heart, if you continue to reject the grace freely offered to you, Christ will eventually give you your desire. And rather than righteousness and everlasting life and peace, you will receive the full force of the wrath of God against your sin. That wrath which you utterly deserve, but which Christ offers to freely take away. Do you not understand how foolish it would be to reject that free offer of grace? How foolish it would be to ask for wrath instead of mercy. So here and now, he holds out his righteousness to you. Do not be foolish. Come and take it by faith. Let's pray for that. Father, we pray that if there are any here in the earshot of my voice, Lord, that don't know you, that are deceived, Lord, and find themselves actually in their sin where they previously thought that they were not, Lord, we ask now for your conviction. We ask for the work of your Holy Spirit to drive us to a place of repentance and brokenness over our sin, that we would find you in the righteousness that you offer Lord and Father, we pray that the generosity that you bestowed upon the saints here would be bestowed upon unbelievers as well. And if there are any among us, Lord, please shower your grace generously upon them. We plead with you and we ask you for it. In the name and on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ, amen.